0: Opening your scriptures to the New Testament book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. It's one of the four gospels. Well, as you well know, we have re entered the Advent season. Advent means the beginning, the beginning of something that is to arrive, especially the arrival of a person. Uh, Thus, for us as a church, as professors of Christ, uh, it's a time of expected waiting. Uh, Like a child who sits at the windowsill waiting for his brother to come home from college, and excited. Or maybe that little girl who waits for grandma and grandpa to come on Christmas Day Excited and waiting. So we wait. Advent on the church calendar is an expectant waiting for the Savior. And yes, Christ has already come. And so we are celebrating that coming. We call that the incarnation, which means the, the, the putting on of flesh. God put on flesh. But we're not waiting Simply in a sense that we are looking backwards and recalling, we're also waiting for the promised return of Christ. One day he will return. Now some people say, oh that's silly, that's just foolishness. Well you know, that's exactly what they said before he came the first time. Oh that's foolish. And he came. And he said he's coming back, and you know what God cannot do? God cannot lie. And so when he says he's coming, listen, beware, he's coming. We do not know when. We sort of know how because the scriptures do describe how he's coming. So we wait. There is a a new advent for us as we wait the return of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, what transports you into Christmas? Is it the the songs on the radio? Maybe it's all the Christmas lights in the neighborhood. They do look nice, don't they? Does that transport you to Christmas? Maybe it's the reading of the gospel stories, and suddenly you're there, you're in Christmas once again. And it does seem like our culture is very eager to make Christmas come sooner and earlier and earlier. Certainly the songs are starting earlier than ever before. So is the shopping. And unfortunately, a lot of the stuff that culture does really has no bearing on Christmas itself, uh, but it is the way we've chosen to celebrate Christmas in our day and age. And honestly, how you celebrate Christmas is up to you. And certainly, how we celebrate Christmas has evolved over the centuries. Uh, There was a time early on when Protestants were not allowed to celebrate Christmas. It was considered a papist celebration, In other words, for Roman Catholics only, that changed. I believe it was Martin Luther, the reformer, who was the first to bring a tree into the house and light it up and celebrate Christmas with the evergreen. Of course, in those days, they didn't have electric lights, and so they would use candles. Can you imagine how dangerous that would be? (laughs) And Christmas, the celebration of Christmas, has evolved tremendously from being a papist holiday to business company parties and everything in between. Everything in between. In your celebration, however, whichever way you choose to celebrate, please recall that Advent, the arrival of Jesus Christ, is simply a part of the story. It is not the entirety of the story. It's only a part of the story. You see, the Advent is important only because, only because Jesus Christ would grow up and die for our sins. And the death of Christ is only important because Jesus Christ would resurrect. And the resurrection is only important because Jesus Christ would then ascend and take his place back in glory. His proper place of authority. So Advent, oh, it's important. Why? Because it's the beginning of the story. It is not the entirety of the story. So in in your celebration, don't just think of Jesus in the manger. No, no, no. Remember Jesus Christ on the cross. And then remember the empty tomb. tomb, And then remember Christ is sitting on his throne in glory. And that should bring comfort to you. And my friends, it should make you shake in your boots as well. Because when I say he's back in his place in glory, I'm talking about his authority as God to whom everyone here is answerable to. That baby in a manger is not so innocent after all, is he? Oh, he's innocent in the sense that he's sinless. But he came with a purpose. He came to set men free and to judge sin, ultimately. Both Matthew and Luke give us Both Gospels give us the Nativity story. Mark doesn't give us too much at all. Then John gives us a different perspective, all of them speaking the truth. Luke gives us the most details, though, in regards to the birth of Jesus Christ. We we don't know what day or what month Jesus Christ was born. Uh, One thing for sure, it was not December twenty-five. So why in the world do we celebrate Christmas on December 25? I think it's a good day, especially if you live in Jersey, and if it's covered in snow, it makes it a beautiful day. But Jesus Christ was not born on the 25th of December. So why was this day chosen? Well, we don't know. At least not with certainty. But it is expected, it is supposed that The the, the day of December 25 was chosen because there was a pagan holiday called Saturnalia, which was the worship of the god, the false god, Saturn. And it was an extremely pagan holiday. In fact, so pagan, besides all the pagan rituals, it it was just a time of debauchery. It, it It was bad. In fact, so bad that Part of the celebration was that you would, you would kidnap an individual, often the slave, and then you would allow that person to run for her life or his life, and they would then be chased. And once they're caught, they would be raped, beaten and killed. That was part of the holiday. And you can see then why the church was very eager to replace Saturnalia with something more wholesome, like the birth of Jesus Christ. Here's something to worship or something to celebrate. Let's celebrate the birth of Christ, and this would be a good day to do just that. I want to deviate again from our study in 1 Timothy. We have one last chapter in 1 Timothy, and we'll pick that up in the next year. 2024. But for the next few weeks I want to talk about the birth of Christ and those things associated with the birth of Christ. And what I want to do this morning is run through the Gospels. There's four of them. I want to run to different portions of the Gospel and land primarily in Matthew chapter 11. And I want to speak this morning particularly about a strange message, a very strange message. And what you're going to see is that not only is it a strange message, but there's also a very strange claim, and then also a very uh, strange, uh, uh, rather, a a strange messenger, a strange claim, and then a strange message as well. Uh, Well, let's begin then with with that first point, the strange messenger. That strange messenger is a man by the name of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist does not come on the scene when Jesus Christ is in a manger. Jesus Christ is now an adult. He's about 30 years old when we begin to see John the Baptist more more in public, uh, doing what John was called to do. And and I say he's a strange messenger because of his character. He had a very strange character. Uh, Strange not because he was weird or eccentric. No, he was strange in that his character was rather uncommon back then, but also... Even today, his character was rather rare, rather scarce among men. Uh, let me tell you, let me explain what I mean. Um, John the Baptist, and by the way, he's called John the Baptist not because he was a Baptist, instead of a Presbyterian or a Methodist. All right? It's John the Baptizer. He baptized people. John the Baptist was very self-effacing. Uh, John, if you read through the scriptures, through the Gospels, you see that he wasn't a man looking for the limelight. Uh, he, he didn't say, hey, everybody, look at me. Follow me. Come to me. No, that's not what he did at all. He wanted to make himself very inconspicuous. He, he didn't want to, anybody to, to see him and notice him per se. There, there was a particular true humility in John the Baptist. In fact, in, in John chapter 3, verse thirty. We read John saying, Christ must increase, I must decrease. Very humble man, self effacing. How uncommon today, especially when you're talking about preachers, right? When you talk about TV preachers, Christ must increase, I must decrease. He was also, in terms of character, very self-aware. He knew himself. He didn't take himself all that seriously, but he did take his job, his ministry, his mission. He took that very, very seriously, but he didn't take himself very seriously. Let me show to you what people thought of him. In Mark chapter 6, verse 14, listen to what people were saying about him. This is how great he was in his time. John six fourteen. John the Baptist, they said, has been raised from the dead, and that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. That's how great they thought he was. And then others said, oh no, he is Elijah. And then others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old, of the Old Testament. King Herod, verse 20, Mark 6, 20. This This is what King Herod thought of him. Herod feared John, knowing that John was a righteous and holy man. Keep that in mind. And yet, John the Baptist did not think so highly of himself. Nonetheless, he was a very bold individual. He was willing to speak the truth, even if it caused him his life. Not his job, his life. He was willing to speak the truth, and in fact, it did cause him his life. He challenged King Herod, you know, the the king who said, oh, he is a righteous and holy man. King Herod took his brother's wife from him and slept with her. And because of that, John the Baptist challenged him, said, King, you cannot do that. And for that reason, John was arrested and beheaded for challenging the king. But he was bold. He stood up for what was right. What strange character. What good character. He also had some rather strange habits. If you look up uh, Luke 1, uh, 80, it says that he lived in the wilderness until the day of his public ministry. He lived in the wilderness. He didn't live in a cozy home in a place where everything was green and pleasant. No, he lived in a barren area. In fact, it says in Matthew 3, verse 4, this was his diet. He ate locusts, and honey. Locusts are not all that bad. <laughs> but they're not all that good either. <laughs> that was his main diet. Locusts and honey. Uh, in my opinion, I assume that this was just very common in the wilderness. You find some honey, you catch some locusts, you have a meal. At dinner time, you probably eat a little more. I don't know. Some people assume that John the Baptist was maybe part of a sect called the Essenes, which also ate locusts and honey and lived in a wilderness. They were the ones responsible for, for um, preserving the Dead Sea Scrolls. But that's just pure speculation. We, we don't know that that's the case at all. We do know this, though, according to Luke 1.15, that not only did he eat locusts and honey, but he would drink no wine or liquor would not touch his lips and Jesus Christ said in in, in Matthew chapter 7 verse 33 that John the Baptist also refrained from bread whoa that would be hard I could do the locusts but refrain from bread his habits were so strange so different that people thought that he was demonized as we're told in, well, our text this morning, chapter 11, and she should jump down to verse 18. Uh, certainly, John the Baptist was not a man driven by an appetite for fine cuisine. Not at all. He was certainly a man of different habits, and his clothing was rather different as well. What we're told is that he wore camel's hair clothes. I think, I think it's woven camel's hair clothes, Matthew chapter 3, verse 4 tells us. Uh, maybe you know that the boy from New York City, he wore a mohair suit, correct? John the Baptist wore camel's hair clothes. And, and the truth is, is that woven camel's hair is very, very soft. and actually, actually has a glossy texture to it, more so than just regular wool. It would be warm in the winter, but extremely hot in a sunny summer wilderness day. And that's what he wore. I do think that John the Baptist is wrongly depicted when we uh, have pictures of him looking more like Fred Flintstone than a prophet, right? (laughs) And that seems to be always the way John the Baptist is depicted. He looks like a caveman in almost every picture in every movie. I don't know that that's the case. and I'll explain to you why in a moment. And part of his garment was a, a belt around his waist different clothing, and he also had a different assignment. His assignment was to be a prophet. And why is that different? Well, it's different because there hadn't been a prophet in 400 years in Israel. By the way, this is why he wore the clothes that he wore. That was a a, a, a prophet's wardrobe. Coarse hair clothing with a belt around your waist. And so that's why he wore camel clothes. It was the attire of a prophet. And again, prophets were rather strange in the land at that point. People, the people of Israel had not heard from a prophet in 400 years. It's nearly double the age of the United States. 400 years is a long time of silence. Right? The last Jewish prophet to speak was Malachi. The people of God had been waiting 400 years to hear from God, and it was just silence. So now comes this man, John the Baptist, with a very strange assignment, one they hadn't seen in centuries. He would be a prophet. Let me read to you the last words spoken by Malachi. Well, nearly the last words. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, reads this. It says, Behold... This is God speaking, and Malachi is stating this to the people of God. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. This is God speaking. He says, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, before God. Who is that messenger? John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, let's break this down. God said, I'm sending my messenger. That's John the Baptist. And God said, I'm sending my messenger before me to announce my arrival. John the Baptist is going to announce the arrival of God. So God is announcing his arrival through John. And what do we discover? we discover that the message that John is giving is all about Jesus Christ. So what's our conclusion? That Jesus Christ is God. Here, the prophet is proclaiming that the Messiah is God, and John the Baptist is professing Christ as that Messiah, as God. You do not have to go into the New Testament to prove the deity of Jesus Christ. You see it here in the Old Testament. And so acceptance of what John the Baptist was saying was then marked by baptism. Thus, he's John the Baptist. People who said, yes, we believe. Yes, we repent. Yes, I know you're speaking the truth, John. They would come to the waters of baptism. Now, keep in mind that, that, that baptism was not a common practice among the Jews. They did have washing rituals, part of the Old Testament law, things that they would need to use water in order to wash in order to worship God properly. Uh, sometimes it was just their hands, sometimes it was parts of their body, sometimes the entire body. However, baptism was common only if you were a Gentile and converting to Judaism. And so people would be baptized if you were not a Jew, you were a Gentile, and you would convert to Judaism, and it was like saying, look, I repent, and I'm coming now as a repenter, and I'm being baptized. Now, I'm a Gentile, but no longer now I'm a Jew, a follower of God. And so in in the Jewish mind, being baptized was not something that was common for them. In fact, they equated Gentiles with dogs, if you asked the Jew, would you rather be your neighbor's chihuahua or a Gentile, they would say, eh, it's hard to figure that one out. I don't know what to tell you. And now they're being called to come and be baptized because they repent. And my friends, they came in by the droves in great multitudes. It wasn't one or two or three. No, people were lining up to be baptized because they were repentant and they wanted to publicly say I am anticipating my Messiah, my savior. I want to know him. And so they were baptized. They came by the droves. In Matthew chapter 3 where we see the record of Jesus Christ being baptized. At verse 8, we read these words, Therefore, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What fruit is this? Be baptized. It was a declaration that I am a sinner and I'm in need of a Savior. They weren't speaking just to John. They were speaking to their own hearts. They were speaking to their family members. They were speaking to everybody who was there at the Jordan River. I am a broken person, lost in a mire of sin, and I too need a Savior. I repent and I give my life. Why then was Jesus Christ baptized? He had no sins to repent of. Well, what we see in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, is that Christ was baptized, and he's baptized in order to identify with mankind, with the people he would die for. He's baptized, in the words of Christ, to fulfill all righteousness. These people, your sins, are the ones I'm going to die for. And he identifies with them through baptism. Well, there is the strange messenger, John the Baptist. We see here also, in Matthew chapter 11, let's jump over there. In the story of John the Baptist, we also see a rather strange claim. It's a rather... Very strange claim. You see that John is the greatest of all. If somebody was to ask you, who do you think is the greatest person on earth, outside of Jesus Christ, I wonder what you would say. If somebody was to ask you, who do you think is the greatest person in the Bible, outside of Jesus Christ, would you say John the Baptist? Most of us would not. Very few of us. If any of us would say, oh yes, certainly John. And yet that's exactly what Jesus Christ said. Take a look at it. Matthew chapter 11, verse 9, 10, and then 11. Jesus Christ is speaking, and look at what he says to the crowds. What then did you go out to see? Out into the wilderness. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet... This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. That's Malachi. And then Christ says in verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of a woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. What a strange claim. A claim that he is a prophet. Again, after 400 years of waiting... My friends, John the Baptist is going to proclaim as a prophet what the world had been waiting at that time for about 4,000 years. The Redeemer, who would undo the sins of Adam and Eve. The one who will complete the job, if you will, of the great prophet Elijah. In fact, look at chapter 11, jump down to verse 14 of Matthew. Look at what Jesus Christ says about John the Baptist. He says, and if you are willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, let's go back to Malachi. These were the very, very last words recorded by the prophet Malachi. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And there Malachi says that God is going to send to you a great prophet, Elijah. Hold it. Elijah had come and gone centuries earlier. Now Elijah is coming back? Yes. John the Baptist, the new Elijah, he would come and complete the work of the great prophet Elijah. Now, if you look at John chapter 1, verse 21, you see that John... The Baptist, By the way, John the Baptist did not write the Gospel of John. Two different Johns. Right? John the Baptist, in chapter 1 of John, verse 21, denies that he is literally Elijah. In fact, if you go back to Luke chapter 1, you'll recall the story of Zechariah at the temple, and the angel comes to him and says that this, this young man, this John the Baptist, He is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He is not Elijah. He comes in the spirit and power of In in his stead, he will complete the work of Elijah. And not only is he a prophet, but Jesus Christ says he's more than a prophet. And then he says, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. We already saw how unusual his character was, how unusual his diet was. Uh, We saw how humble he was. But I think it's his humility that causes us to overlook John. Of course, the the reality of Christ overshadows John the Baptist, no question about it, but we, we don't give the man the credit that Christ gives. Do you realize that John the Baptist overshadows Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary is highly favored, no question about it. Luke chapter 1 verse 28 says, you are highly favored, Mary. But notice that Mary, in regards to Mary, Jesus Christ ever says about his mother, you're more than a mother. You're more than a woman to me. Jesus Christ does say that about John. He's more than a prophet. More than a prophet. What a reputation. One writer puts it this way, that John the Baptist is the valedictorian of the prophets. What a claim. What an honor. And what a great calling as well. I send my messenger before your face. This is, again, the the, the fulfillment of the long-awaited prophecy. This marks the beginning of God's redemptive work. That's why John is so great. This is the beginning of the redemptive work that Jesus Christ is going to provide. Uh, It's the plan that is spoken about for 39 books in the Old Testament. And now here in the Gospels... It's actually now going to be described, documented in these four Gospels. And if you read on beyond the Gospels in the book of Acts, it is proclaimed. And then if you read in the epistles, this Gospel message is explained. And then in the book of Revelation at the very end, this Gospel fulfillment is anticipated. And it all began with the proclamation, the forerunner. Of Christ, John the Baptist. God's eternal plan to redeem sinful man comes to fruition in the announcement made by John the Baptist. He's, he's the man who is given the mantle of being the great prophet. He is not only a prophet, but he is also the fulfillment of prophecy. What an honor that is! He's got a great mission as well. In Matthew 11, we're told that he will prepare your way before you. I remember as a teenager, I actually did have a nicer voice. I used to sing bass. Um, the reason I sit next to Mike is because neither one of us can sing. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and we sort of, you know, we don't hurt each other's ears. We're, you know, we're, we do okay together. But I remember as a teenager, we had a choir, about 20 voices, and and we would start every concert with this, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. And as people were coming in, we were singing, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. And and people would come. Did this sound bad? (laughs) And, And they would come and they would listen. That's exactly what John was doing. He was preparing The way of the Lord. The forerunner who would announce Christ and even minister to Christ. Without doing miracles, he would proclaim and people would come. You see, John did not part the Red Sea. He he did not cause an axe head to float. He did not raise the dead. And yet people were coming by the thousands to hear his message of the Christ. He would become the most sought-out prophet, the most listened-to man, the most followed-after prophet of the Bible, the most powerful spokesman for God. And these people would come in huge numbers. Now, when it says they came to him, please keep in mind that they did not come to a building that was air-conditioned and they had very comfortable seats. No, they came to a very hot, dusty Miserable wilderness. And that's where they sat down and they listened to John. Shall we try that next week? I'm no joke. That's what John was doing. And what a, what a privilege he had. What a privilege to announce the inauguration of the kingdom of God. John the Baptist would announce the entrance of the Savior into the public sphere, the beginning of his earthly ministry. He would make known not only the person of Jesus Christ, he would make known the deity of Jesus Christ, and he would also make known the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Remember what Christ said as Christ was approaching, what John said as Christ was approaching? He said, behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And Mary wanted to announce Jesus Christ. Remember, in John chapter 2, verse 3, Mary said, son, this is your opportunity. Go tell him who you are. And how does Jesus Christ respond? He says, my hour has not yet come, mom. It's not time yet. You see, it would be the job of John the Baptist to proclaim the inauguration of the ministry redemptive work of Jesus Christ. It would be John who would serve as the forerunner. He is the one who is greater than Elijah. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, this is how we read how we read it. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And he did. I wonder if John were here today, would he persuade you that you need to be made ready to meet Christ? John the Baptist will break the silence. The waiting is over. Why so much talk about this man who wore coarse hair, clothing, and ate strange food and baptized people in the Jordan River? Why so much talk about this John? Well, do notice here, verse 11, Matthew eleven eleven, 11, that this is of personal importance to you. Jesus Christ said, I say to you, I say to you. Christ is speaking to you. As he was to them, he's speaking to you now. And notice how emphatic he is. He says, truly, I say to you, truly there is a word in Greek, it's amen, which means most assuredly, so let it be. So so he's rather emphatic here. He really wants you to pay attention. This is truly important. Now, if Jesus Christ is to you just a religious figure, a prophet, a good man, did a lot of good, maybe even some miracles, if Jesus Christ is simply a religious figure to you, I can understand why you would not be impressed by John the Baptist. I can understand that very well. Uh, if Jesus Christ is just a religious figure to you, a good man in history, then John the Baptist is really no big deal. John the Baptist would then be like the, the, the grand marshal in a parade. It's nice. The grand marshal? Really? Me? Get to sit in the front float and wave at everybody, and everybody's taking pictures at you, and now the whole parade is going to follow behind you. How fun! How exciting! But Who cares? Do you remember who was the Grand Marshal last January at the Rose Parade? You don't? You're kidding me. Of course you don't remember. Of course you don't. It was, by the way, representative, former representative Gabby Gifford. I had to look it up. And the reason why we don't remember who the Grand Marshal was is because the parade is insignificant. It's insignificant. And if Jesus Christ is insignificant to you, you'll forget the grand marshal, John the Baptist. It's not important to you. However, if you see the importance of Christ, you'll understand the importance of John the Baptist. Notice here what Jesus Christ does. Christ couches his words about the greatness of John the Baptist in the fact that John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. So what is Christ doing? Look at what Christ is doing. Christ is underscoring how important he is by underscoring how important John the Baptist is. If John the Baptist is of importance, how much more is Christ? And so that's a question for you, for you to answer. Nobody can answer it for you. How important is Christ to you? Again, if he's just a religious figure, if he's still a baby in a manger, then it's of real no consequence. But John the Baptist is important because Christ is even greater. Which takes us then to the very end a rather strange message. A strange message. And we see that at the very end of verse 11 a strange message. This is how it reads. It says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, is greater than John the Baptist. Does that surprise you? John is so great. He's the greatest one of all. There's nobody ever been born to mankind greater than John the Baptist. Uh, The prophet of prophets, more than a prophet. What a great man. And yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And notice the contrast. John the Baptist is great and yet he's the least. That is to say, my friends, that in human history, in human history, John the Baptist is the greatest of all born to mankind, of course, outside of Jesus Christ. But in the realm of the kingdom of God, in the realm of those who are in Christ, in the dimension of spiritual inheritance, the least in God's kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. This is a a strange message indeed, but it's also the reason for our joy. This right here, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That is the reason for our joy. Yes, John the Baptist is the greatest in human history. But the spiritual inheritance for all who are in Jesus Christ is greater than all the physical, historical, honorable, privileged greatness of John the Baptist. In God's kingdom, we are all equal with John the Baptist. In God's kingdom, we're all leveled with John the Baptist. Our inheritance, this is what I'm saying, our inheritance is the same as John's inheritance. Our eternal gift is the same as John's eternal gift. So that the least of God's children receives an inheritance far greater than all of John the Baptist's earthly inheritance, earthly greatness. Joy, joy, joy. We have reason for joy. What a strange message. And this is what John is proclaiming, my friends, when he introduces Christ. The privileges and the rewards of God's kingdom far exceeds the rewards of this world, which begs the question, why do we pursue this world so heartedly and we neglect the kingdom of God, so willingly. The privileges and the rewards of the kingdom of God exceeds the rewards of this world. And we do not have to wait until eternity in order to begin to benefit from this privileged state, this privileged condition in Christ. No, the benefits begin even now. And we have reason for joy, the long-awaited joy. That's a great message. Strange to this world, but as sure is good to our ears who know Christ.